Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Join host Dan Ray, BU Law alum and WBC 1030 radio host in Boston for this edition of the BU Law Podcast. And welcome into the Boston University Law School podcast right here in the Legal Talk Network. I'm Dan Ray, your host. I'm an attorney here in Boston, Boston University Law School alum uh, many years ago and now a longtime broadcast journalist at WBZ-TV and WBZ Radio 1030. I've covered countless court cases on the local, state, and national level, and actually do my own talk program every weeknight on WBZ Radio, Nightside with Dan Ray, from 8 to midnight, if you happen to uh, tune in. My guest uh, today is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs, Ward Farnsworth. He is the Nancy E. Barton Scholar and Professor of Law at Boston University Law School. In 1996, uh, Professor Farnsworth uh, served as a legal advisor to the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal in The Hague. Professor Farnsworth joined the BU Law School faculty in 1997 and now teaches courses on civil procedure, tort law, and rhetoric. The University of Chicago Press recently published Professor Farnsworth's uh, most recent book, The Legal Analyst, A Toolkit for Thinking About the Law. Welcome to the show, Professor Farnsworth. Thanks, Dan. I'm happy to be here. Uh, we're going to talk today around uh, your ongoing research into the role of politics, one of my own uh, particularly favorite topics, uh, when it mixes with judicial philosophy and legal interpretation at the Supreme Court and in other courts. You've written a series of articles over the past few years to take a look at Supreme Court justices and legal interpretations. Um, what can you tell us about that? Well, uh, I guess the, the motive for the research is uh, a gap that I've noticed that you may have, maybe you've noticed too, in the way people uh, talk about the Supreme Court. So on the one hand, did you ever notice that most of the interesting Supreme Court cases are decided 5-4? Uh, yeah, we've noticed that quite a bit. Uh, that quite, I think everybody notices <laughs> that. And then also that it's usually the same five and the same four. And Generally, so, yeah. As, uh, Justice Kennedy right now is considered the swing vote on the court. That's right. So there's a swing vote, but there are, there are four and four who usually vote pretty predictably, and then there's one who, who drifts a little bit, although he usually goes with the more conservative wing of the court. But so, so you see that. I think anybody sees that, and they start to wonder, how, how can you explain this? Is, this? is this because you've got the, 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 the court that's split by different judicial philosophies, or is it more a question of politics? And then you hear the judges, justices and other judges talk about what they do, and they don't talk about politics at all. So John Roberts, when he was um, nominated to the Supreme Court, said that, that, that his job was going to be called balls and strikes. And that that um, analogy was, was widely ridiculed by people in the legal academy and, I suppose, many people outside of it. But it still seems uh, striking, at least to me, that when you talk to judges, most of them describe what they do as doing law. I mean, that's, I think that's really what they, what they think of themselves as doing. And yet a lot of what they do seems not only predictable, but, but to have sort of a uh, partisan character just when you look at the outcomes totally separate from what they say. So for me, this is all sort of a puzzle, which is how is it that you've got these people who are earnestly trying to, to just do law and yet uh, arrange themselves into these into these um, uh, predictable uh, blocks or, or patterns? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting when you mentioned the uh, the ball and strike metaphor that Roberts employed uh, at his confirmation hearings. And in baseball, there are, there are some umpires uh, who squeeze the pitcher a little bit, and That's then right. there are other umpires who are also calling balls and strikes who uh, are known to have a wider strike zone. So, so maybe right. the analogy is a little bit more apt than uh, well, it could <laughs> than, be. I mean, than it we could might be believe at first. That, 
that's 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 right. It could be that some of them have judicial philosophies that, that are the, the equivalent of a, of a of a tough strike zone. But the thing is that some parties seem to do much better than others in front of certain umpires, and that's not quite the way it's supposed to work. So the question is: is are they more like umpires with different strike zones, or are they more like the old-fashioned uh, Soviet uh, figure skating judges of yore, who always, yes, well, seem, to always, who always seem to find that that some skaters were better than others? You know, that's that's well, the, well, of course when yeah, it was always the Eastern European those Eastern European <laughs> judges. Um, when you when you talk about Supreme Court justices, I think we've had all in our lifetime had some fairly high profile nominations uh, and some nominations withdrawn. Very clearly, there is a political process at play. If you go back to you know to Robert Bork in 1987, follow right up through uh, Clarence Thomas, and of course, and, yeah. and even even more recently with um, uh, Justice Sotomayor, uh, right. they're, they're always going to be nominated by a president, and invariably the parties of the, of the president lines up in support of the judge uh, and of, of the nominee and the party on the other side always says, well, we're going to give that judge a fair trial, but we're concerned about their judicial philosophy. So isn't, right. I guess politics is at the root of this. Well, uh, yeah, in a, in a sense, that's right. And I, I guess uh, part of the, the effect of, of the, of the uh, pattern you've described is that confirmation hearings have become less and less informative over the years so that everybody understands what you just said is true. And as a result, I think, um, most Supreme Court nominees are advised and probably well advised not to say too much that's very specific about what they would ever do on the court or what, what judicial philosophy they had. I mean, Robert Bork went ahead and, and, and uh, gave a robust defense of originalism when he was um, uh, nominated, and we all know what, what, what happened to him. So uh, usually the justices now get up and say things like, well, I just want to call balls and strikes. You know, I'm not there to, to uh, do anything more exact than that. And who's against balls and strikes? You know, nobody. Right. Well, in the Bork case, my recollection of that case uh, was that Bork certainly was intellectually qualified. I don't think there was a legal scholar, um, if I'm not mistaken, had taught at Yale. That's right. Uh, and yet um, the political philosophy that he articulated uh, really caught fire. I think Ted Kennedy, if I'm not mistaken, the day he was nominated, uh, released a statement, uh, you know, early in <laughs> the day he was nominated that he was going to have a tough time. And that was, I thought, the first Supreme Court nomination that I can remember that was so politicized. I mean, you go, you go back to Hainsworth and Carswell, but those were two guys who I think everyone had questions with about, you know, their background, their scholarship. Uh, Bork didn't have the baggage of Hainsworth and Carswell. Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to mention those um, uh, Nixon cases, and I guess they are distinguishable in the way you say. I do think the Bork case changed the way that that uh, that, that everybody in the in, in the process thinks about nomination and confirmation. But the, the question for me still remains, from an academic standpoint, uh, it just sort of as a student of the whole thing. You know, when you look at somebody like Bork, is the problem, or was the problem, his theory of interpretation, or was it more his politics? I mean, wh- wh- which is it? Because you know, he, okay, so he is, what do you think? <laughs> well, well, I mean, I'll tell. Let me just tell you about a um, a little study I did to try to get at some of this that I think you might find sure. interesting. I um, uh, what I wanted to do was see whether uh, an, a a Supreme Court justice's uh, theory of interpretation makes a big difference in, in how they decide cases. And and so the way I decided to get at this is. I took all of the all of the criminal disputes the Supreme Court decided over the last fifty years, every case that had a criminal defendant in it in any way, and I looked at all the all those cases that were not unanimous, so all the hard ones, all the ones where, where they didn't all agree, and I just asked about each justice how much of the time did he vote for the government, or did she vote for the government, and how how often for the defendant, 
And then I separated all those results into two kinds of cases, the ones that involved the Constitution and the ones that didn't, the ones that involved rules or statutes that had nothing to do with the Constitution. And what I was wondering was, is, it, is, it, is any given Supreme Court justice's likelihood of voting for the government greater, any different or greater or less in a, in a constitutional case than it is in any other kind of case? You'd think it might be if they, if they have a theory of constitutional interpretation that's different from you know, the, the, how they handle other cases. But it turned out there was almost no difference. So, for example, uh, Clarence Thomas votes for the government about 80% of the time in, in uh, criminal disputes that, that involve the Constitution that, are, you know, that have a descent in them that are not, not unanimous. And in cases that don't involve the Constitution, he votes for the government about 80% of the time, about the same. So he's, he's an 80 percenter. No, no matter what the source of law is in the case, whether it's the Constitution and raises an issue of originalism or whether it's just a, a rule or a statute, he, his likelihood of voting for the government is, you know, four out of five. Uh, on the other hand, um, uh, Stephen Breyer, he votes for the government uh, about 38% of the time in the one kind of case and 40% in the other. So uh, what I conclude from this is that um, these cases that involve criminal defendants, just one kind of case, but I, I picked them because there are so many of them, so they, they're, they're great to study. In cases like that, uh, the likelihood that a justice will vote for the government is about the same. Uh, you know, taken when you take them in the, take the cases in the large, take them as a whole, uh, whether the Constitution is involved or not, and that, and that suggests that that differences in theories of interpretation of constitutional interpretation probably aren't at the root of what there are what what the real uh, differences are. So the, the real differences then are more rooted in I'm assuming in the in the core beliefs, legal slash political beliefs of, of these justices. I assume, by the way, that Thomas's votes are pretty close to Scalia's votes. Well, that, you know, it's interesting. That's, they're pretty close, but they're not quite the same uh, because of, for, for, for one reason, which is that um, uh, in, in, in statutory cases, cases that involve interpreting an act of Congress to figure out whether some, some criminal defendant did something illegal, Scalia is surprisingly generous to uh, criminal defendants. People don't think of him that way. They think of him as a hawk who's always out to, out to mm-hmm. nail the defendant. In the popular imagination, I think that's how people think of Scalia. But Scalia has a real affinity for this thing called the rule of lenity, which is this, this, this legal doctrine that if you've got a criminal statute that forbids something, and it's ambiguous, you, know, you, you can interpret it more than one way, you should read it in favor of the defendant. You should resolve any unclarity in the defendant's um, uh, favor. So, for example, there is a famous uh, and I think very interesting case where you had a um, a defendant who uh, had a he had a gun, and there's a federal statute that gives you an extra thirty years if you use a machine gun in relation to a drug trafficking offense. Well, this defendant uh, had a machine gun, and he offered to trade it for a bag of cocaine. And the person he offered to trade it to was an undercover FBI agent. So the defendant got arrested, and they tried, and, the, and the prosecution wanted to give him the extra thirty years. So the interesting question is: Are you do you use a machine gun when you offer to trade it to somebody? I mean, of course, mm-hmm. the defendant's view is they didn't use it. Using it means shooting it or, or waving sure. it in the guy's face. I didn't. I just offered to give it to him, and the government said, "No, no, you used it. That you used it as an item of barter. That's a use." And so the Supreme Court took this case. And Scalia sided with the defendant and said, look, this is ridiculous. The, the statute's obviously ambiguous. You could read use either way. So, you, so, so we should always resolve that in favor of, of liberty of the defendant. 
So ambiguity equals leniency for the yeah uh, for, for, for the him. Defendant. Now most justices don't right. don't take that rule that seriously, and, and most conservatives don't, including uh, Clarence Thomas. It just happens that Scalia does, and so that that actually gives him a more what you might call a more liberal bent in in statutory cases. Sure. I mentioned that most justices are about the same in statutory and constitutional cases. Scalia is one of the exceptions where there's actually a bit of a difference between how he handles those two kinds of cases, just for the reason I just gave you that he's a little more lenient in this in the statutory cases because. He has this rule that he adheres to. So if if you put aside sort of the um, the judicial philosophies, I think what I'm hearing you say is that each of these justices, as scholarly as they are, they have some core beliefs, right? Uh, which have been made up, I assume, from their life experiences, who they've been influenced by, right? And they follow sort of that internal compass as much as they do a judicial philosophy. I think that's right, and I think they sort of can't help it. If you, if you get down, and you know this, I guess, Dan, uh, as, a, as, a, as an attorney, if, if you get down into the cases that these people actually decide, what you discover is it's pretty rare that you've got a pure, clear-cut dispute about constitutional interpretation anyway. Usually what you're doing is arguing about cases. You know, you've got some prior case that said something, you're trying to figure out whether the new case is, is like the old one, or you've got a piece of statutory language and you're trying to interpret it, or sometimes you've got just policy considerations, you've got a balance. And I think when you look at these cases, it's easy to understand how the politics, if, if you want to call them that, or their, their policy preferences, uh, leak into their decisions. So for example, um, I'll just give you one or two examples. There was a case not long ago where a defendant saw some police officers coming, and he just started running. You know, he saw the cops and he ran. And the cops thought, gee, that's consciousness of guilt, right? They said that seems very suspicious. Let's stop him and search him. And the question is, can you search somebody who simply runs when he sees police? Is that a good reason to search him? Well, the the, the justice had to decide this, and 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 when you decide that question. Your theory of interpretation is of no use. I mean, it's not a question about the original understanding. Nobody thought it was. It's a question about how you interpret the recent cases on reasonableness of a search. And no surprise, it was 5-4, and you had five, the five usual hawks who said, well, this seems like common sense. I mean, if he ran away from the police, then uh, then he, he must have something that, that worries him, and I don't see why they shouldn't be able to search him. And the, and the, and the four doves, as I call them, uh, said, no, it's, you know, that, 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 that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you're sort of bootstrapping if you search him on that basis. Everybody agreed it was just a, an inquiry under the case law into the totality of the circumstances, but they disagreed on how to evaluate the circumstances. Well, when you look at that decision, what could it be based on other than what you mentioned, Dan, which is uh, you know life experience, your sense of how people act in certain situations? There really isn't much law there or theory to, to disagree about. There, 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 there's an interpretation of, of human behavior in the world to disagree about. And when you take any two people, I don't care if they're justices, justices or, or just uh, lay people, and you ask them about cases like that, they're going to disagree on that kind of basis. It's really not a question of theory. It's a question of, um, of, of, of your view of the world. Did um did any of the justices argue? I have no idea well, if the defendant in that case what his background was, but I'm sure that if he was uh, a kid who grew up in an urban area uh, who inherently was distrustful of right. police, uh, a kid who had been told you know for his entire life that um uh, you know police were not to be trusted. Uh, if you're an 18 year old uh, you know kid living in an urban area, you might react very different to the approach of police officers than some uh, Wall Street stockbroker right. uh, in his mid 60s. Yeah, that was said, and I think that you know the the uh, um, the view of the more conservative justices was, well, you know, that that's, we're considering the totality of the circumstances, and that can go into the mix. But on balance, you know, we're not ready to second guess the the uh, the officer who thought that all things considered, you know, given the neighborhood, given what they'd heard about the neighborhood, this was a uh, somebody to somebody to search. There's another issue there. It's not just a question of of um, 
of what you make of somebody running away from the police. It's also a question of how much you want to just defer to the police. So that's another issue that, that people sure. have in sort of in their temperament as they grow up, is they have an, a different view of, you know, if the police made a judgment, you basically say, come on, these, these guys uh, know what they're doing and, and you need to give them some slack so they can do their job properly. Or do you have a more skeptical attitude that they need, that they need to be second-guessed? And that's well, talking, about, talking about deference and skepticism, uh, recently during the State of the Union address, President Obama uh, used the occasion to actually directly criticize uh, some members of the Supreme Court, the majority of the Supreme Court majority, a conservative majority in the campaign finance case. And of course, we have the vision of um, Justice uh, Alito saying uh, un, uh, not true. Uh, right. What did what did you think of that little uh, bit of drama as it played out? Never seen that before. Um, <laughs> interaction between a president and a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, well, I, I, guess, I think I, I agree with what I think uh, John Roberts said later, which is it's probably better if the Supreme Court justices just don't go to these things. I mean, some of them never go. And I think you'll see fewer of them going from now on because they don't want to be uh, publicly embarrassed like that. As I think Robert said, it's very awkward when somebody criticizes you like that and you're not allowed to reply. You have to sort of stand there and look stoic while people around you are hooting <laughs> and hollering. And it's sort of inconsistent with the ju- judicial role for Alito to, to, sort, to sort of mouth back, you know, not true. But on the other hand, uh, uh, he thought it wasn't true. And I think he had a pretty good basis for, for thinking that about the exact thing Obama had said, although there are different ways to interpret both what Obama said and what Alito was complaining about. But anyway, I think it's probably better if these guys just stay away. I mean, what are they doing there anyway? It's uh, it's supposed to be a State of the Union address, but it's got a definite political character. And I, I don't see much good coming from the Supreme Court justices having to stand there and, and have cameras on them, people analyzing their facial expressions. You know, And they're not, they're not used to being contradicted because if you're in the Supreme Court making an argument, uh, they have the ability to cut off, cut off any lawyer they would like, unless in this case it happens to be the President of the United States. We're going to yeah. take a quick break and come back for more conversation about the uh, the politics, the ideology, if you will, uh, in in the in the Supreme Court and in their decisions. My guest is Professor Ward Farnsworth of Boston University Law School. I'm Dan Rain. We'll be back in just a moment. Located in Boston and steeped in 138 years of rich tradition, BU Law is number one in teaching quality according to Lighter Law School rankings and number three in the nation for best professors, according to Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872 and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Now back to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray, a lawyer, a veteran Boston broadcast journalist and BU Law alum. And welcome back to the this edition of the Boston University Legal Podcast. I'm Dan Ray, and with me today is the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at Boston University Law School, Ward Farnsworth. And we're talking about um, the, the, the political philosophy as much as the judicial or the legal philosophy of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Professor Farnsworth has done a, a pretty intensive study of, um, of, of cases that have been decided, and he's looking for similarities. Um, what do you think of this current crop of Supreme Court justices? Uh, you know, some of them have been there quite a long time, uh, Justice Stevens, since um, since the days of Gerald Ford and uh, the, the newest member, uh, Justice Sotomayor, Sotomayor uh, putting aside maybe whatever political viewpoints you might or might not have. Um, 
how do you how do you feel about this group of nine? Well, it, you know, it's it's difficult to analyze a question like that without uh, letting their preferences come in because, as I've said, those are, that's such an important part of what these people do. But on the other hand, I think it can be some things can be said. I think it's a pretty good court. Uh, in the ways that I would say are non-zero sum, in other words, in the ways in which uh, everybody would agree you want you want justice to be to be good. So, so I think they're all hardworking. You know, it's a relatively young Supreme Court. There are there are you know John Stevens is 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 not a young man, but in general, compared to some courts we've had in the past, uh, the, the the average age is relatively young, and they're all very engaged. There's nobody. I don't think who's uh, falling asleep on the bench or who's farmed out all the work to their law clerks. I think they're all uh, vigorously involved in the task. And that's important. I mean, in a job where you've got uh, three or four law clerks per justice, it's actually pretty easy to get disengaged if you want to be. If you're hanging on and you're very old, uh, it's not a difficult thing to have others doing most of the work for you. And my impression from uh, the short time I was uh, fortunate enough to spend there as a law clerk and from people who've uh, been there more recently is that it's a good group in that respect. I think it's also a collegial group. I think they, they, they talk pretty well with each other, and it's not a, it's not a place that's dominated by, by grudges. So I think the average level of ability there in terms of the quality of the lawyers they've put on the Supreme Court is quite high. The, um, now, you clerked at, at, in, in what year and for whom? Oh, I clerked for Justice Kennedy in 1995. All right, the, uh, the 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 decider, if you will, yeah. uh, in in the court was he as was he in that role as the decider back then, and was, was it more Sandra Day O'Connor? Sometimes he was. Sometimes Sandra Day O'Connor was, as you say. They they each of them uh, might be a swing vote in any given situation. And uh, uh, now, of course, it's it's more just Kennedy, who's less predictable. But at that time, uh, either of them might have been in that role. Um, now, clearly, there's a there's a group of conservative justices uh, on the court, including the Chief Justice uh, uh, Roberts, uh, Alito, um, certainly Scalia, uh, and uh, and Clarence Thomas. And then on the other side of the court, uh, you have the four liberal justices. We've already mentioned Judge Sotomayor and and, and Justice Stevens, uh, Justice Breyer, and Justice Ginsburg. And then in the middle is is Kennedy. Um, when you look at all of these uh, justices, all nine, and I assume that Kennedy would be exempted from this, um, which justice or justices stand out to you as the one who allows his or her personal beliefs uh, to mo- most affect their decision making? Well, I'm not sure I can distinguish among them on that basis. As I said before, if you look at them, uh, most of them uh, vote for the the, the um the, the government about as often in the, in the one kind of criminal case as in the other. Now, those are just criminal cases, but I think you'd see similar things in other sorts of cases. So I don't look at any of them as being as being extreme in that way. We have had historical examples that were more extreme. So, for example, William O. Douglas, when he was there, voted for the government, oh, about 5% of the time in, in constitutional cases and about 7% of the time in non-constitutionals. That was, no, that was a very extreme case. Or Chief Justice Rehnquist, he voted for the government almost all the time. I mean, even much more than, than Thomas or Scalia. Even uh, he's not there anymore. So I, I think that right now you've got a you don't have anybody who I would describe as quite as extreme as those historical examples. I think well, it's probably Sc- a good thing. Yeah, well, Scalia is the one that really I think takes the rap and in, in, in the um, amongst the public at large. And I'm not sure what percentage of the public even knows the names of the Supreme Court justices. But in the public at large, uh, Scalia's reputation is that of a, a genuine intellect, no doubt, uh, but but someone who is thought to be an ideologue. Think that's a, a bad rap for Scalia? I do. Uh, I do think that. I think that people think that about him mostly because of the because of the way he writes. You know, he he has a very uh, distinctive approach to writing opinions where 
Uh, he's not afraid to be a little sarcastic, and um, and he's got a distinctive writing voice. And as a result, he's a, his opinions attract attention, and he develops a reputation. I'm not saying he's, that his decisions are free from uh, political or ideological influence at all. I, I think it's there for him just like anybody else, uh, although there are some exceptions that I mentioned before. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't think that he's any worse than anybody else either in that respect. I just think that he has a reputation based on his temperament and, and his style of expressing himself. Now, I assume that uh, there's no way and, and maybe there's no reason uh, to want things to change. I suspect that as we move through the 21st century, um, you know, Democratic presidents are probably going to continue to um, nominate liberal judges uh, for a vacancy on the court. Right. And when there's a conservative president, uh, we will have that continuing balance. And my bottom line is always elections have consequences. And uh, whether, it, you know, whether or not it's uh, in, um, in in what Congress does or does not do, as we've seen recently in, in healthcare. But I also think that elections have consequences in terms of Supreme Court nominations. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Am I right or wrong? Well, uh, I, t- I tend to agree. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, that's how the Supreme Court is held accountable. It's indirect. You, you, if you don't like what they do, you can support a president who will appoint people who will uh, do something different. It and you also have to hope someone either so, dies or retires during the, the tendency of that president. That's right. That's exactly right. And so that raises interesting questions about, for example, whether the Supreme Court justices ought to have life tenure. You know, now they serve during good behavior, which in effect means they serve until they uh, die or choose to retire. And um, that can mean, in effect, in terms of 30 years or more. And there are a lot of people who'd like to change that. You'd have to have a constitutional amendment probably to do it, but we'd like to change that so they have 18-year terms, which would mean that since there are nine of them, every every other year, every every second year, let's say an even-numbered years, you would always have a retirement and you'd always have a replacement. So every president would get two chances, uh, neither more nor fewer. Uh, you know, they might get an extra interim replacement, but basically you get two chances to make a long-term appointment. And there's something to be said for that. I mean, I've argued there's some problems with it because I think it would, in some ways, it would politicize the whole thing because everybody would know that every president automatically gets these two appointments as of right. And maybe that's not so good. So there are pros and cons. But I think there's a conversation worth having about uh, about age limits, for example, as well as as well as term limits. Uh, different uh, different approaches to it uh, that, that could all be used to tinker with the with the um, the regularity with which the the uh, population can exert some influence on the court. Uh, Professor Farnsworth, we've come to the uh, end of our time uh, this morning, but I'll tell you, this is a subject that is inexhaustible. You picked a great area for uh, for conversation and for scholarship. Uh, I, I really appreciate you having uh, joined us today. We want to, of course, thank all of our listeners for, for joining us as well and remind them that you can find every edition of uh, Boston University Law School on the Legal Talk Network and the BU Law School website as well as in iTunes. So, Professor Farnsworth, thanks very much for taking your time this morning. Thank you for having me, Dan. You're very welcome. And I wish all of you uh, out there who are listening uh, to uh, have a great day and enjoy and join us next time for the uh, our, our next conversation here on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.